0: Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, everybody. The uh, sale episode is going to have to be delayed as uh, the wonderful world of web development is uh, causing some problems and uh, some setbacks with the... uh, architecture for selling episodes, but uh, I don't see why you should suffer, so we'll just carry on with the narrative until it's ready. I'll keep you updated. Hello everyone, and welcome to the History of Byzantium, episode 73, Leo's Reign in the 730s. Last time, we discussed the Emperor Leo III's reign during the 720s, a time of continuing Arab raids and more civil war. We'll follow the same structure for this episode, so I'll begin with the political and military narrative and then double back for more talk of administration and iconoclasm. The Arabs continued to raid Anatolia every summer throughout the 730s. However, the Muslim chroniclers give us very few details of these attacks. When places are mentioned, it seems that the Arabs were mostly raiding the areas just over the border. Some forts are mentioned as being captured or destroyed, but they seem to be places that had been held just before the siege that were only now being reoccupied. The only town mentioned in the western half of Anatolia is Akroinan, not far from Amorium, the headquarters of the Anatoly Khan. The sources report that a raid was made on its suburbs, implying that no serious attempt was made on its walls, as presumably the theme armies were shadowing the raiding party, waiting for an opportunity. This reduction in the force of raiding is probably due to two factors. One is the stability of the theme armies, and their ability to successfully counterattack on occasion, but the other is the ongoing war between the Arabs and the Khazars. The Khazar Khanate had been an established state for about a century now, and very much liked the situation of chaos that had existed on its southern border since the rise of Islam in the 630s. The Khazars made a lot of money trading fur and other products from what would become Russia and Scandinavia uh, with the Romans and the Arabs. They did not want a powerful neighbour to the south to threaten their interests or indeed to threaten them militarily. Their greatest fear was always of an attack from the east by other steppe tribes. And so the growing power of the caliphate presented a potential second front that they did not want to deal with. The Arab failure before the walls of Constantinople convinced the Khagan that the time was right to march through the Caucasus again, as his people had done during their alliance with Heraclius. A long and bloody war began with the Arabs in the early 720s. For the Caliphate, this second front doesn't seem to have hurt their recruitment efforts until around 730. It seems likely that the amount of men they were forced to send to the Caucasus limited the numbers they could also aim at Anatolia. Leo was obviously very keen for the Khazars to keep fighting. So in 733, he made a grand gesture of friendship toward the Khagan by offering to marry his 15-year-old son, Constantine, to the Khagan's daughter, Zitzak, or Chitkak, She was escorted to Constantinople, where she would be baptised and given the Christian name Irene. It seems possible that she was a fairly young girl at this time, because she would not give birth to her first child for another 17 years. She would, of course, be the second Khazar princess to enjoy residence in the palace, after Justinian II's bride, Theodora. But despite this grand gesture, no formal alliance or coordinated action took place. The Arabs, once again, put together a huge force and marched all the way to the Khazar capital in 737. Despite an apparently crushing victory, the main Khazar army remained elusive, and the Arabs could not maintain garrisons so far north. So, an uneasy status quo was formed by the end of the decade, with the caliphate retaining a firm grip on the Caucasian kingdoms, but the Khazars more than capable of striking back if provoked. For the Byzantines, this meant that larger Arab forces reappeared in Anatolia. In 740, two large raiding parties crossed the Taurus Mountains, bent on wreaking havoc one made for Cappadocia, sacking towns and driving off captives, while the other marched into the Thrakisian theme and attacked Acroinon again. As far as we know, Leo had not campaigned in person for over 20 years, but he saw this incursion as an opportunity. Throughout his career, he seems to have been able to read the Arabs' movements better than most, Perhaps he used intelligence more wisely for some reason. Whatever it may be, he gathered the Obsikion army and led them out himself, with his son Constantine in tow, and made for Acroinon. As usual, we don't have details of what happened next, but Leo's confidence suggests that he was able to surround the Arab army, which may have been ten or fifteen thousand strong. Perhaps the Thrakision were engaging them from the west and the Anatolikon from the east, allowing Leo to arrive and create that rarest of rare opportunities for the Byzantines, a pitched battle where they were the larger army. Whatever really happened, both Arab commanders on sight were killed, and thousands of men died as well as being taken prisoner. A contingent of the Arabs made an orderly retreat and rejoined the force in Cappadocia, which then made it home safely. Strategically, the victory meant very little in the one-sided war between the giant caliphate and the rump Roman state, but politically it was an important day in the field. Leo returned to the capital in triumph, leading Arab captives for the crowds to jeer at and Arab armour to show off and distribute to his men. Best of all, his now 22-year-old son was standing by his side, a dynasty that brings victory over the Arabs. That was something everyone was looking for. I've put up some pictures of what Acroinon looks like today, and uh, you can see why Leo would have thought it was a good location to trap an army. While events in Anatolia remained stable, things were falling further apart in Italy. I'll discuss quite how icons related to this in a moment, but throughout the 730s, the papacy remained at odds with the emperor. It's not certain when this took place, but in response to this intransigence, Leo seems to have transferred the ecclesiastical authority of Rome over the remaining western lands, To Constantinople. In other words, in southern Italy, Sicily, and the Balkans, the right to appoint bishops and manage finances was now given to the patriarch in the capital, depriving the pope of further income and influence. It's possible that this move came formally after Leo's reign, but it seems likely that the emperor was making moves in this direction with his tax policies anyway. Within Italy, the Pope, the Exarch of Ravenna, and the King of the Lombards were battling for influence in the absence of imperial authority. This culminated in 738, when a Lombard army seized Ravenna. The population of the city had been hostile toward Constantinople since their unfortunate treatment at the hands of Justinian II's men 30 years earlier. Now it seems a certain faction invited the Lombards to send in a garrison and forcibly eject the exarch Eutychius. The exarch appealed for support to the Duke of Venetia, who quickly brought ships in and helped eject the Lombard force. However, it was a warning of the growing power of the Lombard king Liutprand, who was getting closer to removing the Byzantines from northern Italy for good. Soon after the victory at Acroinon, a devastating earthquake struck Constantinople. The epicenter seems to have been in the Sea of Marmara, as its tides were affected and structures fell or crumbled in both Thrace and the Anatolian shore. Many people were killed and the tremors continued throughout that year. Inside the capital, there was chaos. Buildings were buckling or collapsing. The statue of the emperor Arcadius atop his column came crashing down, as did similar statues of Constantine and Theodosius. The church of St. Irene, next door to the Hagia Sophia, was damaged beyond repair. More worryingly still, Portions of the land walls fell apart. Many citizens fled and preferred to live in wooden huts outside the walls for fear of being squashed in their sleep. Leo repaired the walls as quickly as he could. To finance this, he added a tax surcharge of a twelfth, which was accepted given the unusual circumstances. But of course, the emperor did not remove the new tax... Once the walls were back up, the Empire needed more cash, and this opportunity allowed him to gather more. That covers the outline of the 730s. It's now time to get back to the detective work necessary to understand the role of icons within the narrative. For this, we need to travel all the way back to 724, when apparently the caliph Yazid announced a ban on all representations of living creatures within the caliphate. This fits with various hadiths indicating the prophet's disdain for such images. However, most caliphs seem content to have let Christian churches be, except for demanding that the cross not be displayed on the outside. Yazid died the same year he gave that order, so if he really did intend to force the Christians in his empire to strip their churches, he did not have time to follow this through. There's disagreement amongst modern historians about whether this incident had a direct effect on events in Byzantium. But whether it did or not, debate did spring up in Anatolia about the role of icons in any potential Roman idolatry. And it certainly seems possible that Yazid's order touched the same nerve that pushed Leo to make his law book so thoroughly steeped in Old Testament ideas. We know for sure that some churchmen in Anatolia began to think that Christians should be taking the second commandment more seriously, and that perhaps this explained God's anger at his chosen people. Two bishops in Bithynia, as in northwestern Anatolia, took up this cause and engaged in dialogue with the Patriarch of Constantinople, Germanus. This is where our first solid evidence about iconoclasm comes from, because the Patriarch's letters have survived. Germanus is an interesting figure. It seems like he was the son of one of the men involved in the assassination of Constance Second. You may remember the conspiracy which formed that led to his murder in Sicily. As punishment, the young boy was castrated and forced into the service of the church. But being from a well-to-do family, he managed to get a good education and rose within the ecclesiastical ranks. He seems to have been flexible, theologically, and more concerned with the peace and unity of the church than one particular doctrine... We base this on the fact that he cooperated with Vardan the Armenian during his brief reign as emperor and the return to monotheletism. He was then appointed patriarch by Artemius the secretary and happily returned to the edicts of the Sixth Ecumenical Council. I don't know if he was the first eunuch to become head of the church, but I think he's the first one that we've dealt with. In his letters to the two agitating bishops, the patriarch is concerned because he's heard that whole towns and multitudes of people are in considerable agitation over this matter, meaning icons. The patriarch's response was pragmatic. He argues that just as Jesus came down to earth to demonstrate God's mercy, So people today need a visual expression of this idea to help them understand the truth. He also points out that these icons have been a part of Christian life for a very long time now, and to question their presence would be to suggest that the Orthodox Church had been in error. His concern is the ammunition that this would give the pagans, the Jews, and the Arabs, all of whom, he points out, can be accused of idolatry themselves. Think of the Muslim veneration of the Kaaba, the black stone in Mecca. Back in Constantinople, it seems likely that Leo did comment on the position of icons in the church following the eruption of Thera in 726 But based on our very limited evidence, it seems the most Leo can have asked for was the removal of certain icons from the apse of churches, i.e. that some icons were being placed prominently within the church and were receiving worship from the congregation that rightly belonged to God. If we've understood this correctly, then Leo's attempts to end Roman idolatry were very limited in scope. There's no evidence that he ordered these icons to be destroyed. In 730, a meeting was held in Constantinople that ended with the patriarch Germanus resigning and retiring from public life. What exactly took place, we don't know. It seems to have been a gathering of senior courtiers and prominent churchmen from around the capital. It was not an ecumenical council. The iconophiles, like Theophanes and Nicephorus, interpret this meeting as the moment when an official policy of iconoclasm was outlined and Germanus resigned out of principled opposition. However, it may be that the meeting was more focused on the transfer of ecclesiastical land into the domain of imperial tax collectors. And it may be that the patriarch's resignation was in opposition to church authority being demeaned in this way. We do have a surviving letter of Germanus's written from his retirement. It's to one of the same Bithynian bishops who Germanus accuses of ignoring his orders and allowing the icon debate to get out of control. From the tone of the letter, it seems that those in favour of icon removal are in the ascendancy and that the emperor is one of those responsible. We can sense here the emotions which the issue touched on. Safe behind the walls of the capital, men like Germanus were confident in rejecting this religious innovation. But out in the provinces, Arab raids gave their inquiries an urgency that the patriarch may not have understood. One of the bishops points out that the icons are supposed to protect their cities from being sacked and have repeatedly failed to do so. Whatever the true content of that meeting, the resignation of the Patriarch was a major event within the Church. Over in Rome, Pope Gregory II convened a synod the following year to discuss the issues of the day. Again, the iconophile writers paint this as an anti-iconoclast synod, where the Pope dismissed the new imperial policy out of hand. However, these reports are very suspicious, and again it seems like it may have been more interested in tax policy than icons. We also have suggestions that rather than inflame relations with Constantinople, the Pope was keen to improve them, particularly after the brief Lombard capture of Ravenna. Talk of icons was in the air, and clearly Leo was interested in pleasing God by removing any potential idolatry. But it doesn't seem like this led to any icon breaking. It was his son who would head more directly down that road. And in 741, his son would get his chance to take power when Leo became ill and died. It was said to be dropsy by Theophanes, which we might interpret as congestive heart failure. He was 55 or 56 years old and had ruled the empire for 24 years. Leo was a successful emperor by the standards of his day. As in, the best he could hope for was to defend what the empire still had. This, of course, he did to the best of his abilities, and he has won a place in world history through his defense of Constantinople during the siege However, he was no closer to defeating the Arabs than any of his predecessors. What he was, though, was the first emperor to die peacefully in his bed for 56 years, and that is an achievement worth toasting. Leo was not a religious innovator and did not wish to provoke a major religious debate he just followed the mood of his times in searching for a way to mollify God's wrath. His immediate legacy would be his son Constantine, who had grown up to be a good leader and military commander. But perhaps the emperor had neglected his other most important ally, Artavasdos. The commander of the Opsikion would soon turn on Leo's son, leading to yet another bitter civil war could the emperor have foreseen this animosity and done something about it we'll never know but that is the issue that we'll be dealing with on the next episode of the history of byzantium as usual you can contact me at the history or on the facebook page thank you so much for your support and for listening